and welcome to Celluloid Citizens, the podcast about film. I'm Brian O'Connell. I'm Sean M. Thompson. And I'm Christopher Burke. And today we're going to be talking about the 2016 horror film A Dark Song, written and directed by Liam Gavin, starring Catherine Walker and Steve Oram, and shot by Cathal Waters. It's a it's a small production, so I don't have too many names to uh read off at the top of this episode. Um so yeah, uh I guess to start off, um we've all seen this film before. Some of us many times before, Chris, I learned today. Oh, yeah. Um how, how many times have you seen this movie? Uh, my guess is seven to ten, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I rewatched it last night because it's been—it's probably been about two years since the last time. But I, I definitely went through a period where it was kind of my my comfort movie. You know, uh, I watched it yeah. a lot when my father passed away because it was just you know it was helpful in a variety of ways. So yeah, it's a very—I uh, mean, it's a—it's—it's it's hard to talk about in some ways because uh, on the one hand, this is very much. You know, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, uh, as as many critics tend to, of the sort of glut of uh, art horror, ele- quote unquote, elevated horror movies, of saying that um, horror is just a framework in this movie. You know, because this is very much, uh, you know, an occult horror film. You know, about dread and suspense, but mm-hmm. um, it is. I mean we'll just talk about the movie but it is a strangely uh it it goes into an element of almost like a sublimity or serenity that a lot of horror films don't aim to and i i do i can understand why this you know especially in difficult periods why this film might be a sort of comfort film i mean you know maybe it's it's a little heavy and dark, obviously, but it is also uh well, I guess we'll talk about the ending. And and Sean, have you have you seen the movie before? I know you have, but like uh, I've seen it once before, so this is my second viewing. Yeah. I think this is my my third and my first in a long time. Um but yeah, uh I mean, I guess we could jump right into it sort of. I, I mean, um there's not too much context for it it's the director's first film um he said basically and i i think this is interesting when you compare it with also uh, american films like hereditary and uh you know even the witch and things like that um basically he he kept almost getting films made but they all fell through oh no and yeah and this film was basically his attempt he was basically asked by a producer can you do a low budget film you know that that will make a degree of money you know and for a lot of directors horror is the genre for that because um i mean horror is the most you know through ups and downs and like sales and movie viewings and everything uh horror remains one of the most consistently profitable genres so you know basically this started as a sort of low budget affordable exercise in in genre and especially the producer wanted something that was not about you know, vampires or zombies, which are the sort of predominant trend in, at least at the time, were the predominant trend in horror. So it is interesting to watch this film, which um, feels so personal and deeply felt and profound in the same way that, you know, Hereditary or some of the other American films do, but also know, as articulated by the directors, that it, you know, it's it was you know, and sort of an attempt to to make money and to do it on a, a sort of popular, accessible scale. So yeah, um but yeah, I guess we'll just we'll take it from the top. Uh uh I mean we could just go through the scenes in order, but um yeah. Uh so the movie 
it opens with this gorgeous shot of I, I think it was shot in in and around Dublin is my belief about the movie. Um but it it has this beautiful shot of the landscape and these sort of uh ominous clouds sort of twirling in the in the sky which which get you know, they return later. Um and basically it's pretty economic as an opening. Um you just see this woman, we don't know her name yet, uh probing this house, um, you know, sort of looking for, you know, saying that she wants to buy it, you know, all of these. It has a very sort of gothic atmosphere at the start and the sort of sec- Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, w- did you get that sense from it, Chris? You know, like a sort of classic yeah. gothic. It it feels like establishing shots that could be used in Wuthering Heights almost or like you know there's there's these vast empty landscapes with hardly a soul brewing and yet there's like an ominous music and an ominous cloud over it uh and when you see like a lone car driving against all this vastness it's just it helps establish the sense that this is a movie uh, about the kind of the vastness of something it's it's a sense that Mm. it's the vastness that underpins the world but then yeah, because we have this one individual, it's it's also tied uniquely to her as well. So, I mean, that's kind of a way of thinking about it that I didn't really have until I was trying to, like, put put my finger on what exactly it is. Is it that makes it feel like it has so much dread the whole time, even before we know anything about what's going on? And you know, the, the musical accompaniment with the landscape shots, I think, really does so much for this movie and, and helps you. Yeah. It obscures the fact that it's low budget because they they get so much mileage out of it. You don't really think about the fact that it's low budget. No, yeah. I mean, it has the score is great. It has a. Uh, I I don't know what instrument it is exactly. Some sort of obviously string instrument, but there's this like sort of groaning, uh, low sound that recurs across mm-hmm. the soundtrack. And they call it, it a has didgeridoo just... in the captions. Oh, it did. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, didgeridoo. It's very. It's it's ominous and. Yeah, it's funny. I've never thought of a didgeridoo as. I mean, I guess stereotypically, <laughs> I picture it in a different context. Yeah. Well, need. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, that's. It's good to know. Didgeridoos can be can be creepy. Um, yeah. But, but getting back to that, um, that sort of dichotomy between, you know, it's. It's so strange because this film um, at once feels very large scale in a way that transcends the low budget means, but it's also confined mostly to the space of this house. And I feel like that tension you mentioned, um, Chris, between the sort of vastness of this landscape and then this lone individual figure that that we're following through the landscape, it sort of defines the outlook of this film uh, in 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 a sort of powerful visual way right at the outset. In that, this is a, I mean, the direct in in the director's view at least, but this is a profoundly religious film. Um, or at least, you know, quote unquote spiritual, uh, and it has this, uh, that, that sense that might be, you know, more, uh, deeply experienced or differently experienced by, by people of faith of, a a sort of single solitary soul stranded in this sort of vast, um, not quite incomprehensible, but, uh, you know, transcendent cosmos that it's, it becomes the source of dread in this film. Um, Sean, would you, I mean, do you get the, I I find that the opening is very effective in establishing that sense of uh, awe and terror. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I would say so. I mean, it's, um, I know they had a low budget, but they, they knew the tricks and they knew, I mean, they worked with what they had, and one of the things they had was this vast landscape, mm-hmm. and they were smart enough to use it at good uh, intervals. Yeah, almost as like punctuation to the sort of ritual elements. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll go, we'll get to it, but sort of skipping ahead, one of my favorite aspects is, um, you know, there's a part when she wanders away from the house finally, and she's been—it's been established she's been in this house for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And and she's just sort of wandering around, and it, you just 
they film it in such a way it just looks like this endless vast landscape mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it has a an alien quality to it in a way and i think it helps that you know it's like there's not that many i mean there are no cars obviously when they film that mm-hmm. but you get the sense there weren't that many to begin with well yeah i mean i have to uh give credit to this film just as a as an irish citizen myself um you know i support liam gavin who's irish irish directors you know will always get my uh get my support but um basically i i it was the interiors were shot in dublin and the house actually is in a housing complex so they were actually surrounded by by other buildings and kids and everything. So actually that's why you don't see out of the windows in this movie is because if you looked out, you would see kids playing on like, you know, in a basketball court or something. Um, But it it works, especially with the lighting. Um, But, but the exteriors were shot in County Wicklow in Ireland, which, um, you know, as someone who's been there, those landscapes can get so empty and so desolate it's i mean is that where is that in ireland i believe it's somewhat south of dublin so you know the sort of southeast of ireland i might be wrong Southeast, okay but that's what my father was saying before i came on this podcast (laughs) so um but yeah no and then we'll just move along but the opening sequence the sort of pre-title sequence is extremely economic with how it just sort of you know it doesn't lay out exactly what's going to happen but it does establish that air of drama and intrigue immediately that she's probing this house the realist the realtor keeps like asking her like do you want to think it over or you know have you researched other options but she's dead set on buying this house and you know you can see that she's on a mission sort of already um largely due to Catherine Walker's excellent performance in this film which which carries through um but basically i mean there's a lot of urgency yeah there's an urgency i mean the thing is people describe this film as a slow burn um you know in that it's a, it's certainly a you know languidly paced film in some ways but on the other hand i feel that there is a a sense of tension from the outset that does not really wane and it keeps it moving um you know apparently the original full cut of this movie was a full hour longer it was two hours and 40 minutes you know like which would have been a, a wholly different experience but yeah, I feel like that might have gotten into maybe being a little too slow. Yeah, well, it would, you would, you know, you win some, you lose some in terms of obviously the central aspect of this film is a months-long occult ritual, the the Abramelin, um, which is a real ritual uh, that you know. Well, quote-unquote real. Quote-unquote real. (laughs) I mean, the ritual itself is real. (laughs) Yes, no. Actually, the impetus for the film was uh, Gavin knew about a house that um, Alistair Crowley owned in London where he had tried to perform this. And basically, he got bored midway through and left. Like, he just quit. Um, (laughs) And then... You know, the house has like, you know, oh, people killed themselves. Oh, people went crazy. But, you know, that was the sort of, so, I mean, so it is a a, a ritual that it, it, he's not just pulling it out of nowhere. It is, there is a sort of occult tradition to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if this had been like a three hour film instead of a, an hour, 40 minutes, I feel like you know, you might have gotten an even more grueling and uh, uh, sort of brutalizing experience, which which would have been one effect. But on the other hand, it might have been a little too a little too languid uh, for for a horror movie. Well, I feel like I never would have wanted to watch it again. Yeah. Right, right. You probably right, have right. to add some kind of a subplot or something with uh, the the guy the guy character's backstory or something to keep it yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but speaking of the guy, uh, the next scene is Sophie. That's Sophia, I believe, is is yeah. uh, the main act a character's name, and she meets this man at the train station. Um, you know, uh, Joseph Solomon, who is played by Steve Oram, who I've seen around. Um, I think you know, I first saw this in. 2017 but uh since then i've actually seen him in a few like tv shows and uh you know other movies the main thing is the end of the fucking world he plays the dad character oh right he's the dad that kills himself or dies of a heart yeah he's like which is a totally different character than what he's playing here but um and I also, I haven't seen, this is much to my disgrace, um, I haven't seen any Ben Wheatley films, uh, but I know he is the co-star and co-writer of Sightseers, Ben Wheatley's film Sightseers. So he's a he's a relatively high-profile actor. Well, not high-profile, perhaps. But, within um, horror, maybe. Yeah, within horror, within horror, yeah. Whereas... Uh, Catherine Walker, her background is in theater, I believe. Mm. Um, but w- it, anyway, so basically, um, she's hired this man to perform uh, this ritual with her, and they inspect the house together. And he asks her a series of questions about, you know, have you been fasting? Have you been. Um, you know purifying yourself you know she doesn't all of these abstaining from sex all of these things and i don't know i i want to talk about uh joseph solomon a little bit actually before we get into the film because one of the interesting background elements to this was that the producers of this film um kept pushing for solomon to be a sort of you know, quote unquote, this is how he was described, like Clint Eastwood figure, sort of a, you know, a glamorous, you know, sort of a figure from the occult who's like seen it all and, you know, is is like this guide for oh, that's terrible. Sophia. Yeah. Don't <laughs> you think that's awful? It. Yeah, that would have introduced way I'm too very glad they didn't go with that. They yeah, wanted they... it to be uh the you know, the sort of warrior figure, whereas you know, part of the, I I don't know if charm is the right word, but <laughs> part of the interest of this film is that Joseph Solomon, a lot of the time, registers as just like some asshole, you know? Yeah. He's not, he's not a, he's not like a movie occultist in terms of, you know, he's not like this, uh you know, ritual magus who's, you know, you know, trained in the dark arts or something like that. He's, you know, when you meet him, he's sitting in this sort of, like, like puffy blue winter jacket and, like, a beanie, and he's just, like, he's just some beardy guy that some you would dude. see it, like... Yeah, just a dude, and that doesn't... I mean, he's sort of, like, I th- I think of him, like, like a Redditor, almost. <laughs> yeah. Like she, like just some internet troll who happens to know magic who she hired because she says she's talked to other people too. Yeah, I honestly like maybe that's. I mean, there are redditors, I'm sure, who do this sort of thing from time to time. But um, yeah, I mean, he's just the the fact that she's contacted other people prior to him is important because you get the sense that this guy isn't the first choice, obviously, and that he is, you know, we don't get much background about her search or about, you know, Solomon himself for that matter, but um, you get the sense that he might be somewhat more disreputable or second-rate than the other occultists that she would have contacted first, Uh, but nobody else is willing to do this with her, so... And initially, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, Solomon, Joseph Solomon, is not willing to do this with her at the outset, um, because she tells him, you know, I want to do this ritual, 
for love. I want to get someone to fall in love with me, right? And he just totally scoffs. I forget exactly what line is it is um, that he says, but it's something like, you know, it's like using, like, I don't know, nuclear energy to, like, make a birthday cake, something like that, you know, yeah. where she is saying, I want to do this extreme right um just to get someone to love me back and it's funny i mean he says like just use a dating app like don't don't be doing this like you know this is heavy dark magic but um yeah i mean there is a lot of i don't know if a lot of is the right word but would you say there's an an element of humor in this film because especially on this viewing um a lot of the the interactions struck out to me as sort of wry or at least partially tongue in cheek would you agree yeah i, I think so i mean I, first of all the fact that he's kind of a prick is just that introduces a degree of uncertainty as to his own motivations and his own willingness to act in good faith with her and so you have a movie that is fundamentally about uncertainty and dread rather than outright scares it's it's the uncertainty of learning about the world and what lies underneath it and beyond it and so if you add to that some like warrior of the occult that knows what he's doing and that that (sighs) is an authority on the matter it's like this guy has enough expertise he might be able to do it but he might not uh and that just escalates the stakes because could end in disaster but if you have the certainty of somebody who is an expert or confident they'll do it um successfully then that's less tension that's less point in even having yeah. a movie yeah, so i think there's yeah. some funny moments especially when he's like kind of ridiculing her motivations but i think what stood out to me on this watch is that if you track her responses to that question as they shift over time about why she's doing this mm-hmm. she words them in a way that they still have an ambiguously true component to it like the way she puts it first is that uh she says she loves someone who no longer loves her back and she's we mm-hmm. learn later some details that give that a different meaning than what you're thinking of in terms of romantically. Uh, And I think that if you, as you track her willingness to confront what is eating away at her and the true source of it, um, I think this first response makes sense along that trajectory, but it's also laughable to him. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he does chastise her for it. I mean, he, he berates her for many things across the course of this movie, but um, he sort of plays like a, uh, like a drill sergeant magician. Yeah. I mean, at the start, you get a more, you know, it, it, let's just say that he takes a, a bit of a sharp turn once the ritual actually kicks in and you see a more brutal side. But at the start, he just seems like, I don't know, sort of a douchebag, not, you know, not not necessarily a bad guy, but... um. Certainly, maybe, again, going back to what Chris was saying about, you know, this versus the producer's intent for this character, um, not necessarily the type of guy who you would trust with your life in in an evil occult ritual over the course of months. He sort of seems like a skeevy drug dealer. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And, you know, we learn... the thing that I like about this film partially is that that uncertainty around him actually deepens as the as the film goes on. It's not like you get to know him and realize, oh, okay, this guy's legit or this guy's not legit. It just he gets more and more hard to get your get a handle on, I guess, uh, as the film progresses. But um, yeah, I mean he he he's he's about to leave um when she tells him that the truth is that her son her 7-year-old son is dead and the real goal of her ritual is to speak to him again um and this is what this changes his mind uh he says that's something worth getting up in the morning for so you know that's that's what seals the deal um and then i mean there's this brief sequence of you know 
sort of preparatory things where he's getting ready and she's sort of there's a beautiful scene well beautiful is is hard to use to describe it but there's a there's a lovely scene where she meets with her sister in this like cafe area i guess and basically i don't know this struck me as we don't actually get i mean we do get to a degree but we don't get too too many discussions of of sophie's actually uh, actual experience of grief in the film because this is actually in many ways a rather dialogue sparse film it's not like you don't get a moment like um in hereditary where tony collette just sort of monologues about how you know how horrible her life has been or <laughs> how much she you know or screams or anything sophia is actually pretty reserved in in some ways when when it comes to her feelings about this issue but you do get this very tense and a painful scene between her and her sister where her sister's trying to convince her not to do this and you know sophia says what if your child died right and um the sister says i wouldn't do this right or not this and that struck me there's a sort of it's a very subtle expression that comes over Sophia's face, but you get the sense, and I assume this is already understood, but to me that exchange was a very powerful and, and brief encapsulation of the gulf that separates somebody who has experienced loss from somebody who's removed from that loss. Like, you know, she says, I wouldn't do this. But who's to say that she wouldn't do this? I mean, she doesn't, yeah, she doesn't, you know, she hasn't experienced that pain and she can't understand why her sister is going to this, you know, this level that we later learn has a, you know, strong odds of literal damnation forever in hell. Um, So, you know, but it's, you know, I, I found that, the character moments can be subtle, but I found that that scene particularly effective in that it shows that sort of gap of understanding between the two of them. Yeah, and, I think there's a... I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful scene because the, the performance in the lead actress is just, you know, in contrast with Tony Collette, and actually I had a note here to, to say that I think her performance is just as strong as Tony Collette's from Hereditary, mm. but it's just the very opposite of what's called for in that particular role, because in this case, she has to be world-weary and, and disconnected from everything and just totally numb and kind of wrapped up in her own grief, and she's yeah. fighting to keep that reserved from the world because nobody else, she doesn't feel anybody else can relate to it or understand it. And like they mm-hmm. do a couple of things to kind of I guess, augment that aspect of the performance. And also uh, another detail I wanted to mention from the previous scene that does come into play um, is that when, you know, the the second time he, uh, the second time Solomon asks her what her motivation is when she changes it from being someone, you know, I love someone who no longer loves me. uh, You know, the second time when she tells him, you know, she says that she wants to speak to her child who is dead and it's her fault. She specifically says that it's her fault, Mm -hmm. which I think is important to, to keep in mind. So, we don't really know anything other than that, but she does say that that's the truth and that she's coming clean with him this time. Uh, we later learn that some things are totally forthcoming that way either. But uh, you know, the whole yeah. you know, the whole story really can be the whole character development can be traced along her changing uh, responses to that question throughout the film, really. Yeah, yeah, and I believe I don't so I don't know if this comes in that exchange um, or later, uh, like slightly later. But doesn't Solomon say something like, uh, like something along the lines of half truths are still lies or half truths? Yeah, that's later. Yeah, Yeah, okay. But it is that is interesting in considering the film's overall project related to to faith and doubt and all of these things. I find that the opening sequence, 
you know, and we sort of start to bring it to an end with the two making these preparations in the house for like at least six months of food. Oh, importantly, you also see um, uh, Joseph DTing, I think is the word he uses, where he's an alcoholic, we learn, and he goes, he, he has to, you know, sort of quote unquote purify or, or clean himself. So he he undergoes what looks like a form of intense withdrawal where he's sort of shuddering and sweating on the, uh, you know, the, the, kitchen floor or something and i don't know it's it's interesting overall in this film how i mean obviously with this occult ritual framework there's ample opportunities for showing like physical debasement basically like you know like or even gore or bodily suffering and but but what stuck out to me on this on this viewing at least was most of those scenes that we might expect from a film dealing with occult subject matter are eschewed and there isn't actually a lot of directly represented physical suffering in the film um it it's it's always focused on the psychological and emotional strains which i found interesting you know it it just that just came up because of this scene which is one of the you know few scenes where we see solomon especially solomon doesn't suffer physically too much across the film um but it's it's interesting in in considering these sort of uh representation of suffering in this film is is acutely focused on you know, a, a psychological suffering rather than than physical suffering. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I like the uh, I like the whole preparatory sequences. The, the way they kind of use a lot of very brief cuts here and there. It's it doesn't have yeah. the feel of constantly being a montage, but it's honestly hard to tell where you would call something a scene break because of right. how, how brief those moments are, but how they're strung together uh, pretty quickly and. Yeah, I liked watching all the preparatory stuff, and I think that the movie does a great job to decide to lean into the fact that this is a long-term ritual, and mm-hmm, it's going to be mm-hmm. an endurance test of a lot of different kinds. And, um, you know, so apart from the fact that he's telling her she's going to have to endure a bunch of stuff, he's also demonstrating somewhat that he's he's on board and willing to do this detoxing from his alcohol problem, uh, because he is at least serious enough to seem to be proceeding in a in a real way with this, even though he's still pretty unpredictable about what his motivations are. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the preparatory sequences, I mean, you describe that sort of montage aspect, but not, you know, not quite montage, but uh, a sort of fluid, you know, approach to the editing, which I think much of the film is like that beyond just the just the opening scene but um especially these sequences uh i feel excel at establishing that atmosphere of anxiety and i feel that the most you know the one that really bothered me is the sort of closure where he's literally you know you know drawing the salt circle basically around the house and it sort of lingers on the process it's a very like i don't know i think the director said he wanted a like a a social realist approach to the occult or something like that and you see that in that you know you see the sort of meticulousness of the actual labor that goes into you know it doesn't cut over the in fact, much of the the explicit rituals are are not shown in detail, but all of the preparatory elements are shown. You know, drawing the circles and you know uh, you know instructing on what you know the the ritual will be before seeing it. And I feel that it works well to establish both the sense of grueling. Um, work and exhaustion involved but also the especially in the sequence the the dread i mean sean what do you take away from the sort of 
that first section of the film prior to when the ritual actually begins. I mean, I like that it gets into that if you were to actually do this, magic would be a job. Like, it would be mm-hmm. tedious and often boring, laborious, like, very not glamorous a lot of the right, time. Right, 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 right. It's... Like, there's not a lot of... um. There's not a lot of flash. It's more just like we put, you know, this stick here and we have to draw this. And do you know your yeah. German? Yeah. And oh, yeah. When when they're talking about languages, I think is when it comes up that she, he asks if she speaks German and she says yes. But then he sees some kind of something that he indicates is an omen that she was lying. And he says he cuts his hand. Yeah, he cuts his hand. And she says, well, I, I can make myself understood. But clearly the intent was, are you fluent or, you know, would you, you know what I mean? So like, th- that's where I think they talk about a, a half truth as a lie. And then it comes up again later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And those, that's sort of the, uh, the, the cutting of his hand also assumes a ominous portent for later scenes and that he says, you know, everything, once they start, everything is going to have direct consequences like that in one way or another that you know if you lie you could get hurt if you you know if you these these deeds and emotions are going to have very physical or um at least tangible consequences and the other aspect that again going back to that sort of doubt faith uh dichotomy that you see across the film this on the one hand he's telling her you know we're dealing with real angels real demons it's not it's not like a psychobabble he says or you know altered states of consciousness it's it's the it's the real deal it's literal things but on the other hand architecture yeah it's architecture but on the other hand he tells her, you know, we could do this whole thing and it might not even work, you know, nothing might happen. So it's very, um, the film is set preparing you for these sorts of, these two eventualities in a way where on the one hand we could be seeing supernatural manifestations and, you know, angels and demons and all of these things. But on the other hand, it's it's telling you that there might be you know we might not get anything and it might just be this pointlessly exhausting uh torturous experience so i find i mean i like that they get into it's one of the i mean i use realistic in air quotes but it's one of the more realistic films about magic that i've seen because it gets into like this doesn't work for everybody this might not even work for you there's so many factors involved and it just might nothing might happen at all right 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 yeah and i think an important detail from the conversation with the sister when when we're learning just how cut off from the rest of her family she's become uh they have a quick mention that she was in a psychiatric uh hospital at some point so i don't think the movie is is trying to present itself to be read as this is all in her head because that would be cliche and boring as hell yes yeah i don't think that they're i don't think they're indicating to us that they want us to think of it that way but what I think that accomplishes is it adds more uncertainty to the mix. And this is a movie that doesn't have scares. It has a shitload of uncertainty, though. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's I, let's just get into it. So um, yeah, so they get sealed in. So they have to make sure it's all good until they close the salt circle and then they can't go out. Yeah, it's uh, that was again, that was the moment where, you know, on my first viewing of this and again on the second viewing, it really, I find, you know, the occult in film is so often just wrapped up in elaborate terminological garbage or, you know, just totally ridiculous. But in this, in that scene where he finally seals the circle, you get a sense of real, of the weight and the seriousness of what they're doing and that only. I mean, I know personally... Uh, and I, this struck me again on the second viewing mm-hmm. when he closes the salt circle and they walk in there's that shot there walking in the house and closing the doors you realize like this is a complete stranger yeah. like, he might just be there yeah. to rape and murder her honestly yeah. and well we'll get into it but there's also this great thing where he says you know you know this is your last chance 
if you want to leave, you can just stop. And she says, seals the circle. And he, he like almost smiles because, he, you know, he sort of laughs and like raises his eyebrows and everything as he finishes it off. Because I think he is also cowed by her seriousness in a way that, you know, he's impressed by by her commitment to this in a sense that, it, you know, obviously he's going to hold the power for at least the first half of the film. But um, you you get a sense of the intensity of her purpose as, just as much as his. But um, I mean, it's almost it almost plays like he's the veteran detective and she's the new detective yeah, the and Ernest he's like rookie. you're gonna see some shit and she's like i'm ready and he's like okay okay buckle up and then the first day day one he just i believe he dumps water on her he dumps like cold water on cold her. water too and, and they don't have heat they've mentioned they have no heat in this place yeah. and that was true in real life by the way it was freezing in this house <laughs> um so they were oh everybody on set was wearing uh you know coats and hats but um but you know she gets dumped with cold water and he just starts berating her and it is that's what i was talking about earlier in that you know, you get the sense that he might not be such a good guy, but the very first sight, once it started, he just becomes partially, like, just abusive and awful. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know... I wonder how much of that, though, I sort of had this debate with my girlfriend, how much of that, of him being a total douchebag, is intentional to try to get her to a heightened emotional state, and how much is him just being a douchebag? Well, that's the... yeah. I think we're supposed to read that as an uncertain mix. I, I would say that there's both. Yeah, because he also, I mean, well, he says there's sexual rituals, and then I mean, we'll get to that. But... <laughs> well, no, I mean, we we can. I don't think we necessarily need to go in strictly cr chronological order for this film because so much of it. Okay, well, I mean, there's a part. You know, he goes into all these various rituals she has to do, um, the various types of things, and then. There's one night he goes, okay, here's the sexual ritual, so get naked and, like, put some makeup on, yeah, and, yeah, okay, yeah. bend over. And then he just jacks off, and he's like, okay. Yeah. And she's like, what are we not? And he's like, oh, there's no sexual ritual. It's um, He says that it's important to um, be able to concentrate. And, like, the scene before, he was, like, painting symbols on her back, and I guess that got him horny, and he couldn't concentrate on anything. So, it, yeah, it, it's really abusive, and, and yeah, well, you causes get the... her to feel disgusted by, by it. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, understandably. There's this scene of where in between, you know, he paints the symbols on her back so that he gets horny, and then you have him, like, sort of bouncing a ball off the wall in his room, and, you know, you get... It's it's just an image of the frustration that he's experiencing as well as... I mean, it is funny that he's, like... He tells her, like, you have to be pure. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. But meanwhile, like... <laughs> I don't feel like he's necessarily doing that. Yeah, no, the thing is, I mean, part of the intrigue in terms of just a chamber drama or, or like a character study um, is that going back to that uncertainty, you never, you're never really sure how much of this is, is legitimate, you know, occult magic, witchcraft, whatever, and how much of this is just him sort of abusing his power over her and just using it as an excuse to be controlling or violent or in this case. I mean, one, one thing I like is that, yeah, the uncertainty. So when they first meet around that time, he says something along the lines of, oh, like she mentions the Kabbalah and he's like the Kabbalah and he starts ripping it and we're like, oh, no, this is Gnosticism. What, did you just yeah. read some stuff on the internet? Something mm. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, immediate next scene is yeah. him printing out pages like, <laughs> from, like, a saying. library <laughs> or something. So, or at the hotel. And it's like, okay, so you're ripping in her for getting information off the internet, and you're literally, like, printing out yeah. some of the sacred texts, like, from the web. You were right, Sean. <laughs> this, this is Reddit behavior. But uh, <laughs> it really is he's like they rip into you for one thing and then they do the exact same thing yeah no i mean he's a he's not a nice guy uh he's, he's yeah. just, he does he well, does earlier, a lot of posturing too yeah it, it's 
I will earlier one thing that we no, forgot go, to mention no, is like when he initially starts to refuse to go along with this after they check out the house, he says that she still needs to pay him the money because the agreement was that she would pay him like seventy grand just to look at this house and make sure it was fit for the ritual. You know, the money wasn't conditional on him saying yes. It was just to get him to look at it. And so Jesus was really that yeah. much. I thought well, there's a lot was... of class remarks in there. He keeps calling her posh uh, because he, you know, he knows how much it would cost to rent this house for a year. He knows how much he's charging. I guess that's so she's got to have a lot of money. And he very obviously doesn't like he looks very maybe even homeless. Like there's a suggestion that or actually he says that he's been living very rough and he's alcoholic. So he could be homeless technically I because mean, she has to pick him up in London at some point. Yeah, that is true. There is a, there is a, I mean, he's specifically, he calls her, he calls her her boss girl in one of the early scenes and everything. And there's, there's a specific element of, you know, just innate resentment, I guess, bound up in both the class difference and in, in a definitely misogynistic way that you, you see quite often across the film i mean yeah like there's um, there's an aspect of it where he goes you will like cook and clean for me i don't think that's part of the ritual well it could be like a monasticism kind of thing no yeah yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like that but it's another one of those things where you can't tell if he's just putting her through hell because that's necessary although the only time he goes to do the dishes or around the dishes he gets down so Mm -hmm. yeah that's true i mean you know so I mean, across the the first section of the film, we get a number of, you know, sort of glimpses, not extended views of the sort of grueling rituals that she has to do, such as like, you know, six days of sitting in a circle with no food. I mean, I'm sure that extra hour was probably just a bunch of extra time on these rituals. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um Although the director, who is a Catholic, interestingly enough, Doesn't said he character. was, yeah, uh, which is important. But um, you know, he would, he says that he intentionally, just out of his own um, anxieties about the cults, which are actually palpable anxieties. You know, they're not. You know, an atheist agnostic might have maybe more abstract anxieties or interests in the occult, but he actually is like, does take this stuff seriously to a degree. So he, he said he actually went out of his way not to recreate, um, specific rituals on, on screen. Okay. I mean, you see, you you see fragments of the rituals basically. And a lot of the stuff like, so when he cuts, he's like, okay, get rid of it. (laughs) He'd like, we gotta go. The golden leaves that you see later, which we'll talk about are from the Abramelon, you know, all of it, all of it is from the book, but you don't see the, you know, they're not doing the whole thing because just partially out of his anxiety, I guess. But, um, but it is interesting, but, um, Anyway, you see, you see a number of, of these sort of brief rituals. And then I think the first, one of the first major and certainly horror sequences is that, you know, there's a forgiveness ceremony and she refuses because she, quote, uh, doesn't do forgiveness, which is yeah. ex- incredibly important in relation to this film. But she... She refuses, she just won't do it, and she's like, is there another option? And the other option turns out to be drinking blood. Um, it's a workaround. Drinking hobo blood. <laughs> that's work the workaround. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think it's interesting, and it, it adds to the uncertainty that, you know, whenever there's a problem in this enormously complex ritual, she tells him or whatever, or it comes up in conversation, he's like, well, I think I can work with that. As long as you're being honest with me. So, like, he keeps repeating that, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room here as long as you're being forthright, even if even if your motivations would be considered immoral in this context, it's okay as long as you're being forthright about it and not trying to be devious in some way about your motivation. So there's a, a right. there's that additional bit of uncertainty. And I think that the fact that this is such a big and changeable ritual, like it's it's. It makes it interesting because anytime you see something like an occult ritual in a movie, it's like 30 seconds long, real concise and to the point. And this way, you know, they can take this montaging or pseudo montaging technique they're using 
have these little five to ten snippets of five to ten second snippets of dialogue that are just decontextualized moments of the ritual. It sounds weird and ominous appropriately, and yeah, you, it keeps you disoriented, but also really into understanding what they're trying to do because you still don't really know exactly how they're going to get to the objective here of summoning this guardian angel, which, you know, we should also add that together, you know, part of his motivation is the fact that he can ask for a favor when this guardian angel appears, you know, she's the driving force behind it, but he's also going to get that benefit if they can succeed. Right, right, right. Both of them. I, I, I don't, we didn't, quite outline what the ritual is exactly but it's it, hard it's to, to yeah. summon yeah it's it's hard to but it's it's to summon a guardian angel and grant a wish basically each one of them gets a wish and her stated wish at this point is to speak to her seven-year-old son although is that true we'll find out <laughs> but, um uh, and and he doesn't reveal his wish so much later, but um, he doesn't. I what I like about um, what I like about the blood scene is mm-hmm. what I think this film does really well is again going back to, I mean quote unquote realism. Um, it portrays magic in a way that is believable. Right, like there's just little things, and this is one of the first overt things when she's drinking the blood. You know, she's disgusted. She complains i mean obviously she nearly vomits she nearly vomits but she you know there's diseases there's hepatitis and he's just very mean drink it so she drinks it almost vomits but keeps it down and then we immediately cut and it's like the glass is full again he goes drink it and she goes i just didn't go and like and he berates her there's almost like this this hiccup in reality right 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 yeah okay uh there is um i mean there's a a great scene uh just in terms of if you're if you're a sucker for like ominous occult terms and this this movie's got them all but he's a uh, he sort of outlines the ritual where he's like you know this is the first you have to do five circles basically usually the angel appears fourth or fifth although which again is interesting for the sort of tension um, it can appear at any time, you know, it, it it could happen like immediately or it could happen. It could not happen at all. But, um, you know, and, and, and he's talking about how, you know, just this real death metal stuff about, you know, untethering from the world and like descending into the abyss and the void and all of these. And it's very, you know, one of just from a, a genre perspective, um, I, I am very tired of like overly explicated uh occult terminology whereas this hits just the right balance of you know sinister um evocative terms without necessarily weighting it down in like you know this like terminological bog of like (laughs) i did like that they do mention uh deities but they don't go too far into it i think that I get sort of annoyed with that at this point where they're like, we found a name Mm -hmm. and they just keep saying the name. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's like Pazuzu famously from exorcist is like, love the exorcist. Really wish it wasn't Pazuzu. (laughs) Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Oh, and also one of the interesting things I noted watching this time is how it's subtle, but, um, just a simple and effective choice. All of the pre-ritual scenes are shot in a very flat, naturalistic light. And then as soon as the ritual starts, you start getting these like color elements in the in the scene. Like not overt, overt color elements, but you know, there'll be orange light coming through the window, or when she drinks the blood there's like a heavy green atmosphere in the room and uh, you know there later there will be purples and sort of golds and i just thought that was it was just such a simple touch but the way that um these you know these colors get introduced into the frame as soon as the ritual starts and they they vanish at the end um but it, it's just you know there's a lot going on with just this gradual alteration of reality and eventually i mean it's what it's well structured because like even little stuff like she goes in the hall and she finds some flowers yeah 
Yeah. And she asks, uh, Joseph, did you bring these in? And he goes, I mean, of course not. No. Like, the windows are all shut. Yeah. yeah. The signs yeah. are... If they hadn't... They're right. If, sorry, if they hadn't done the earlier stuff, that would have been like, who cares? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they do the work, and you suddenly it's like, oh shit, flowers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that when um, they start having indications that things might be working, the indications are always subtle enough that the main character's self-doubts always stick up, and she, she feels unsure that she can trust that as a sign that things are working. Because like it, early on, he says that uh, he's going to unshackle the house from the world for two days while she focuses on this stone and she falls into the stone and requests that her trans transgressions be washed and stuff. And it's, I thought that was a really cool section that, that sort of talks about the kind of cosmological maneuvering that's happening where you're trying, he's trying to join mm-hmm. these two worlds together. And I just love the way that he phrased, he phrased it as unshackling the house from the world. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, around that time, you know, apart from the, the uncertainty of the time skip where she ends up drinking the blood twice to her own recollection, uh, in in some of these scenes here, there's also cases where she sees her bedroom door open on its own and finds a goblin toy on the floor that she thought she only saw in a dream, and it's a toy that belonged yeah. to her son, and that's a that's a figure that comes back throughout the um, throughout the movie to to highlight some of these changes that are going on, and then there's yeah, these... that bird flying into the window sequence that you know again that's something that happens in the real world, but it's taken as an omen here according to Mr. Solomon. Right. Yeah, he says it's synchronicity. You see that? And they do it in a good way because you don't get to really see a good shot of the bird either. And neither does uh, neither does Sophia. And he's like, oh, it's a blackbird. And she's like, well, how do you how do you know? And he goes, oh, I just know. Yeah. But she can't exactly see it. So there's that doubt still. Like, it could have just been any kind of bird. Yeah. yeah. And also the, the dog um, that barks at night that uh, Sophia doesn't hear initially but you know solomon is hearing and says you know a dog wouldn't be out here at you know way out in the countryside like this and he barks every night but the audio is very usually the supernatural and this might be partially a result of budgetary constraints but it's also just sort of marvelously effective um uh, you know as as just a horror device it's mostly auditory manifestations rather than you know uh visual manifestations one of the i mean that in particular made me wonder like was there just a dog that wouldn't <laughs> shut up and you just were like you know what let's just work it into the well the it. funny thing the funny thing was that uh the reason it's in there is that when gavin was writing the film he swears to this day or night Anytime he was writing the film, there would be a dog, a dog barking outside. So he just worked it into the screenplay because he thought it was a sort of interesting, eerie detail. But it is, and I mean, earlier on, when before she's even in the house, uh, I believe it's you know he tells her before they seal it up, go for a walk. So she goes yeah. for a walk, and she sees this real gnarly dead dog ah, covered yes. in maggots. Yeah. That could be that. That's probably related, honestly. That's what I figured it was. That it was like it's that dead dog somehow. Yeah, in this sort know, of the, the spirit of the dog, perhaps. There's also this one of the really creepy scenes early is this. Uh, you know, she's on the floor and she presses her ear to the boards and she hears scratching or tapping of some kind. And he says, oh, yeah, they're just, you know, they're just trying to find out what we are and what we're up to. Right. And it's just so unsettling in the sense that you get this uh, again with that marvelously evocative turn of phrase that Chris mentioned earlier, like untethering from the world. You get the sense eventually that they might as well just be like in space or something, you know, so detached are they from that because you do lose any sense of an exterior world and what's happening instead is that they're just sort of sailing through this invisible zone that they you know we don't get a sense of but you know i mean this film is very different after the covid year man (laughs) yes because like having seen this before i was like wow yeah that'd be weird and having (laughs) seen it now i'm like yeah it was fucking weird wasn't it (laughs) it's weird 
I wonder if anyone attempted to do elaborate occult rituals over the quarantine. I, I would, I would be bet. I mean, I'm sure many people did. I, I wish they wouldn't, but... Mm, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, But anyway, so... Where next? Where are we in the film? I like to think there's a, an old couple out there like, oh, we can finally try the Abramelon. <laughs> <laughs> like, finally, we have the bucket time. List, bucket list, might as well get it done. <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's just one real nice, normal, like, no fussing, no cussing. <laughs> Bunch of live, laugh, love signs. That's right. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, I mean, where are we? Where are we in the film at this point? So I think in the film we're pretty much um I think we're around the point where she starts saying nothing's happening. Yeah. She does that a lot. And he tells her that they have to do one of what one of the rituals again. Right, yeah. Or they have to start from the beginning rather. Well, yeah, you see the the dumping of cold water again certainly. But you no, Chris, you are right. She does say there's nothing happening like right up to the last half hour of this movie yeah you know she's saying nothing's happening and i was reading some reviews and clearly that was a uh, that was a sentiment the critics shared and so well i had some theories about that i I think that's very deliberate uh and and i didn't think about this until this most recent watch but what stood out to me about that is that the, the pattern is something concrete that sticks out to the viewer happens and in camera you know it's talked about as a sign that something's happening a scene or two later after they've indicated a passage of time she immediately well she starts to doubt again and i think this is being portrayed as like a a doubting like the 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 figure of the doubter in catholic belief and since she's catholic i think that you know comes into play um like she's she's a doubting thomas of sorts she's this is also about her catholic faith in addition to the fact that it's a gnostic ritual because earlier she talked about catholicism a little bit with her sister and essentially, it's very clear that she is not really a sincere believer and that all she actually really is focused on right now is, is filling this this hole of grief that, that is in her life. She calls it a hole, I think. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's an, a, a purposeful pattern that is meant to indicate one of her character flaws that maybe even is resulting in this ritual taking longer than, it's, than it might otherwise. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go that far right. necessarily, but it, it occurred to me. I mean, I was on the fence about whether it was. I feel like it was both of them, but I also wonder. I wonder if Joseph was like secretly drinking because they established he brought a bottle of liquor. Yeah, yeah, I think that he's not drinking throughout this period, but he does pick it up later on. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, oh yeah, I mean yeah, it, but you you I mean like if he's willing to do that, like what else is he doing that might be. <clears throat> uh screwing with his purity yeah, there's still yeah. all kinds of uncertainty about all kinds of things so i think but, you know the fact that she keeps doubting adds to that and i think it makes perfect sense that she would yeah which i do i i guess i would say this is a very religious film not in a disparaging sense it's 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 very much about that experience of doubt and faith that is common i mean not not just to religious people but in general, I mean, this sort of reaching for, you know, something that's beyond, you know, just this, you know, reductive or scientific explanation for the world, and the the constant doubt that it's, you know, that there is nothing beyond that world, and that it's all just bullshit, and I mean, a lot of this movie is her like, give me a sign. And then she gets a sign and is like, well, not, not that. Enough. Yeah, well, this, the signs are never as concrete as we would like them to well, be. Yeah, because it's like, what are flowers supposed to mean? Great. Yeah. What? Yeah, you'd, you know, it's like she expects something more impressive from God or something, you know, <laughs> where, you know, she wants like, I don't know, like something spectacular or something that will affirm her belief. But it's just these subtle sort of coincidences or sort of, you know, thing. But I do think the film actually eventually is getting you uh, to experience awe at those moments that, you know, as Sean mentioned earlier, after like a solid hour of almost nothing and then the flowers show up, you're like, oh my God flowers so it is happening you know right but if they hadn't done that <clears throat> establishing work 
if this had been the first 10 minutes, you'd be like, who cares? Right, 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 right. right. Even if the film meant you to be like, wow. Because I think, yeah, off air, you talked about the power of tedium. Yeah. I wouldn't say this film is tedious, but it definitely gets right to the line of like, this is well, in, maybe not boring, but endurance. Like, this is repetitive. Endurance, and that you're you're sitting waiting like her for something to happen, wanting something to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's a great scene where it's all. I mean, it's almost like I mean, I feel in some ways the audience is so sutured to her point of view in this case that you know you're exp- like somewhere in the middle of the film she gets frustrated and is gonna leave right like i'm done nothing's happening let's let's just end this and he blocks the door and this is the first time you it's a very good on on steve worm's part but you see actual fear in his eyes like like deep fear like don't don't leave because then we'll be totally fucked forever you know and it's it's actually quite chilling as a moment because for the most part steve warham is the sort of uh either a douchebag or outright abusive or sometimes sort of like begrudgingly funny or warm or something but in this moment you see that you know whether or not we put stock in it or sophia put stock in it this is very real for him and it's not you know it's not he's not playing or i mean you know you see him manipulating in some ways obviously with the masturbation you know abusing his power but at the end of the day it isn't actually a you know it's not a power trip for him because it it it's real you know he he doesn't want this to go wrong because then he he dies too 